Well, uh, good morning again, everyone. Um, so a lot of you know, I used to uh, I used to be a Starbucks manager. I used to years ago, I managed the Starbucks over in Lehigh. That's over there by Texas Roadhouse. And uh, at one point, when I was at that store, um, I hired a guy. We'll call him Harrison because that was his name. Uh, Harrison was in a lot of ways a really good employee. Like he was friendly to customers, he was really enthusiastic while he was working. And if you walked and you sat in the lobby and you just watched Harrison, you probably would have thought, that guy's a really good barista. You would have been wrong. The problem with Harrison is that while he was really friendly and enthusiastic, he was unwilling to learn how to do things the right way, whether it was like making a drink, brewing coffee, uh, prepping ingredients, even like how to clean things so they'd actually be clean. And when one of my shift supervisors would, um, would see Harrison not doing something the right way, then they would stop and they would coach him and, and show him the right way so that the drink would be right for the customer, or the coffee would actually taste good once it was done brewing, or the bathroom would be clean, or the mocha sauce would actually dispense from the, suspend, the, the, the pump because it was made right. Um, and Harrison would seem to listen to them, but then as soon as the supervisor would walk away, nothing would change. He'd just keep doing things however he wanted. So like I said, if you were watching and you just saw Harrison working, you'd probably think, He's really great at his job because he seemed so confident. He was so friendly. But then if you tasted one of his drinks, you'd probably change your mind. And this was super frustrating for my shift team because they were trying to help him, trying to assure that customers got what they expected. But he just continually um, ignored them or rejected their help. Um, and even more frustrating, he'd argue that he was correct or that he didn't actually do what they saw him do or that his way of doing it was better. So you can probably guess where this ended. While it was really important to me that my baristas be friendly and enthusiastic and positive with customers, it's even more important that they learn how to do things correctly so that when a customer orders something, they get what they expect, right? And his appearance of doing well couldn't hide the fact that he wasn't actually pursuing doing well. And so after a lot of discussions and a lot of warnings, Harrison lost his green apron, and he was sent on his way. And by the way, even after losing his job, he continued to say that he didn't do anything wrong, and he tried to discredit me and my team by saying we were just picking on him. So <clears throat> we're going to be looking today, we're, gonna, we're continuing on in Matthew, we're looking at chapter 21, and in today's passage, Jesus is going to call out some people that are similar to Harrison. Not, they're not similar in a coffee sense, but in a spiritual sense. Um, they seem to be devoted to God. On the outside, they look like they're doing all the right things, but inwardly, uh, they don't have hearts that are following him. He's going to call them out for, for putting up barriers to keep people away from God while acting like they're helping people draw closer to God. Now, I'm really excited for this chapter of Matthew. Um, I, I've, I've loved the content of this passage, but it's a lot. There is a lot that's going on. Um, and it can, when, we, when we read through this at first glance, it's going to feel like there's a bunch of narratives and parables, and each one has a point, but maybe they're not related to each other. But I hope, as we go through it this morning, you're going to see how all of it points to the same idea. And that idea is on your card. We're going to put it up on the screen. The big idea for today is in Jesus' kingdom, we devote ourselves to worship the king and welcome others to come along. In Jesus' kingdom, we devote ourselves to worship the king and to welcome others to come along. 
Now, real quick, just some brief context. From here in chapter 21, where we're starting today, until the end of Matthew in chapter 28, this is one week in the life of Jesus. So all of the stuff that we're going to be looking at starting today until we end in November is taking place in one week, um, and it ends with Jesus' death and resurrection. This week is Passover week in Jerusalem, a huge celebration, a remembrance for the Jewish people, and there's a lot that's going on in Jerusalem and that we're going to be reading about in these last chapters. So today, I'm going to read this whole chapter of, of Matthew. We're going to read all of chapter 21 together, and then we're going to head back and we're going to look at each part, and we're going to see how they tie together and what Jesus was communicating about his kingdom and his authority in that kingdom. Okay, so this is the starting with verse 1 of chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, The Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts, and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer. But you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? 
they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third, and then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. All right. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to jump back to the beginning now. Um, it's a really familiar passage. When I was reading that, I'm sure you recognize that. That's from Palm Sunday. We always read that on that Sunday before Easter. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. People throw down cloaks and branches. It's a big celebration. It's important that we notice what's going on here, though. Jesus, by doing this, is declaring his authority. He's announcing that he is the king. He's the king. He's the Messiah. Now, to us, that might not... not seem very controversial, but like we talk about Jesus is the king all the time. We sing about it. We call Jesus king, King Jesus. But, but to the people who were there, and especially the religious leaders who were there, this was a big deal watching this go on. Jesus is purposely fulfilling a prophecy about the Messiah by riding in Jerusalem on a donkey colt. And we see that in verses 4 and 5 when it quotes that prof prophetic scripture. So even just by doing that one thing, he's telling everyone, yes, I'm the one. I'm the king that's been prophesied. But even the way that he gets that cult shows how much authority he has. 
A king had a right to commandeer anything he wanted. Like he could ask for a horse or a donkey or a wagon. He could even like take a house for his use. That was just part of the power of being a king. But when Jesus tells his disciples to go get that donkey colt, he's showing his authority by just saying, go and take that colt, he'll give it to you. And when he goes, this random guy just says, yeah, sure, take it. There's no argument. He doesn't ask for proof or clarification. Jesus is demonstrating his power, his kingship over everything that's going to be happening over these next few days. And the crowd recognizes. They get it. They know that Jesus is the king. They throw down their cloaks and branches. It's like us laying out a red carpet. It symbolized royalty. And they shouted, Hosanna. Um, And that's like, that would be like us saying, praise God for saving us. That's what Hosanna meant. And, and they're calling him the son of David. They mean, we see this king, he is from David's line, we believe he's the one. They are giving him that authority. They recognize Jesus is sent from God and that he's saying he's the king. And people come out to see what's happening, to see who this king is, and the one shouting Hosanna explained that it's Jesus. He's the prophet from Galilee. But their actions are saying more than that he's a prophet. Like they're exalting him as the exalted Messiah. Okay? Now the religious leaders see exactly what's going on. And they're not happy about it. So when we get to verse 12, when Jesus starts clearing the temple court, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. We see people coming to him for healing. We see children, and they're repeating these shouts of praise, Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus has exerted his authority by stirring things up in the temple and flipping those tables. And so the leaders accuse him. They say, do you hear what these children are saying? They're implying you're the Messiah. That They're saying you're sent by God. Aren't you going to stop them? Now, pause for just a second. Jason, in the last couple of weeks, has reminded us twice what the first century perspective on children was, right? They weren't valued, to say the least, In fact, some didn't even consider them fully human yet, right? So for these religious leaders, that was especially true. So they're they're not just objecting to this message, Hosanna to the son of David. Even more, they're objecting to the ones saying the message here in the temple. You're letting children say this? You're letting these nothings speak out, these prophetic fulfillments that obviously they can't be prophecy fulfilled because they're the ones saying it. And Jesus responds by quoting scripture, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Mic drop, walk away. He's he's saying, I I thought you guys studied the scriptures. Do you remember this one? He's reminding them that God has always valued kids, and they're often the ones who get it first. These kids see Jesus. They watched him ride into the city. They saw their parents and their aunts and uncles celebrating and shouting Hosanna. They're seeing him give blind people sight here in the temple court. They're seeing him give paralytics the ability to walk again. These kids know who Jesus is. He's the promised king. But the religious leaders aren't going to have it. They are not going to recognize Jesus as king. So the next day, when he comes back to the temple, they approach again in verse 23. What do you think you're doing? Why do you presume to have this authority to disrupt our money systems, to heal, to teach, to be treated like a king? They say, who gave you this authority? What they really mean is, we didn't give you this authority. So what are you doing? And Jesus knows that. 
They don't really want to know where his authority comes from. They just want to maintain the status quo. They want to be in charge. And everyone else can see who he is. They can see where Jesus comes from. The religious elite just want him to settle down, back off, and let them have their place. So he puts it back on them. He asks them about John's authority, John the Baptist. Where did John get the authority to baptize? They can't answer it because if they say God gave John that authority, then they look like they're going against God. And if they say it was John's own doing, then the people are going to revolt because they knew that John was a prophet. So they won't answer. They're in a catch-22. They're not going to say anything. And so Jesus is not going to give them the satisfaction of an answer either. But what he's done is he's shown them that they have their answer. If they deny that Jesus' authority is from God, the people are going to revolt. If they acknowledge that he's from God, then the people are going to expect them to submit to Jesus and follow him. They can't stay in power and answer Jesus' question. They either deny or accept his authority, and either way, they lose. Okay, so going back to our big idea we talked about, in Jesus' kingdom, the first point is we devote ourselves to worship the king. And these religious leaders, they will not do that. They won't give up power and control they have by choosing to acknowledge and submit to Jesus as the king. They don't want anyone else to worship Jesus as the king either. And that really has Jesus riled up. And we see this when Jesus starts flipping those tables at the temple. Jesus was really angry. But why? Why did that specific thing make Jesus so angry? Before we talk about that, let me ask you this. Did you notice one part of the story when we were reading that passage that felt a little bit out of place? The fig tree, right? It seems odd. Because it's weird that Jesus comes to Jerusalem, goes to the temple, stirs up some controversy, gets a good night's sleep, and then the next day he's walking back to the temple and he chastises a fig tree because it's not bearing fruit when it's not the season to bear fruit yet. It seems like what's happening in the temple and his conversations and his parables, those are the important part. It is, but this fig tree is also important. We can see that Jesus uses this withered fig tree to, deceive, to teach the disciples about prayer. But this interaction with the fig tree, um, it, it isn't just set up for that lesson. He uses it for that because they ask him about it. But it's follow-up for what he did at the temple. So what did he do at the temple and what does that have to do with the fig tree? Why did Jesus cause that ruckus, flip the tables, chastise the money changers? So, we, you know, we saw pictures of going to the tabernacle last Monday. We got to experience a physical representation of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a forerunner to the temple. So here's the temple court. This was the temple during Herod's time. Um, and so that middle part would be closer to what we experienced at the tabernacle, where we have that, the, the holy place, the holy of holies is that tall part in the middle. And then the tabernacle tent around would be the kind of rectangle around there. But in the temple... There was, it was even larger. This whole assembly was the temple court. And that large outside part that's rimmed by those walls, that was called the court of the Gentiles. Um, and the court of the Gentiles was called that because it was the place that everyone was allowed to come. Gentiles who were non-Jews along with Jews. Everybody could come into the court of the Gentiles. But because the Gentiles didn't follow the Jewish law, they weren't allowed to get closer to the temple or to those inner, inner courts. Now, the Jews, they weren't being rude. 
by keeping Gentiles out of the inner court. They just had a very high reverence for God. And at this time, the temple was the dwelling place of God. God dwelled in the Holy of Holies there in the center of the temple. And so they took it really seriously to go through the ceremonial rites that you had to go through in order to come close to God. The court of the Gentiles wasn't about excluding people. It was about the holiness of God, recognizing that as we draw closer to him, he is holy and we are not. And so they made sure that people took seriously the worship of Jehovah. And part of worship at the temple involved sacrifice. Families were to bring their own animals to sacrifice, but not everybody had a spare animal or had a worthy animal. Or maybe they traveled from really far away and it was inconvenient to bring an animal with them. So merchants would set shop, set up shop here in the Gentile courtyard um, so that they would sell sacrificial animals that you could buy and then sacrifice for your sin. But first, they had to exchange their money for the temple currency. So I come to you with my dollar. The dollar doesn't work in the temple court. You have to get temple money. So I exchange my money. I get temple money. And I've already been gouged because it's it favoring the money changers, not me. And now I have to go and I have to buy a dove or another animal. And once again, it's not favoring me. It's favoring the guys who are selling. But at least I have my animal now. Okay, so all of this is structured to favor the people that are doing the selling and the changing, not the ones who are coming to worship. So that's a problem. And the other problem is that this whole temple area is meant to draw people closer to God, to offer them a respite from the chaos of the world, to allow them to pray, to contemplate scripture, to examine themselves, to turn and worship to God. But instead, it ends up being more like Walmart at 5 a.m. on Black Friday, I mean, you don't go there on Black Friday and find yourself an environment that leads to worship, right? Everything that's going on in the court of the Gentiles, you could argue that it was necessary, that it was things that needed to happen. They needed people who could exchange currency. They needed sacrificial animals. You could even say that this was good spiritual activity, that those vendors in the court of Gentiles were, were somehow doing God's work. And that's what Jesus and his disciples saw when they walked in. Okay? So they see this chaos. Jesus has a reaction to that. And the next day, we find them encountering this fig tree. So when Jesus sees this fig tree with no fruit, he curses it. Why would Jesus be upset that there is not fruit on a tree in the spring? There shouldn't be fruit on a tree in the spring. It's just got leaves at that point. Okay, so healthy fig trees, like all fruit trees, they get their leaves before they get the fruit. Fig trees, though, do something different from other fruit-bearing trees. After they leaf, they get these little nodules that are like precursors to the fruit that's going to come. Um, and often, people would stop and they would pick the nodules because they were sweet and they were tasty. They were abundant. There was a lot of them, and you could pick them, and there would still be plenty of fruit on the tree. From a distance, you wouldn't be able to tell if those nodules were there. You'd just see the leaves, and you'd think, okay, this is a healthy tree. But here, when Jesus got up close, and he saw that those nodules weren't there, he knew there was something wrong. This tree isn't healthy. It's not going to produce fruit. It had the appearance of health. It looked good from far away, from the outside, from a distance. But up close, you could see there was no fruit. The fig tree, the fig tree was not producing figs. It was just producing nice leaves. 
Now, leaves are important to a fruit tree, right? We know from our science classes that leaves are the collectors of sunlight, which enables the tree to, to use photosynthesis to produce the food it needs so the fruit can grow. The tree has healthy leaves. It has what's necessary to make healthy fruit, to make the tree do what the tree was made to do, but it's not actually doing it. It's not producing frigs, figs. There's no fruit on this tree. So when Jesus condemns the tree and says, may you never bear fruit again, he's cursing a tree that's already useless. He's simply going to make the tree look like it actually is. The tree doesn't produce fruit, but its leaves make it seem like it's producing fruit. So Jesus says, I'm going to make this tree wither and die so people don't keep thinking they can come and get nodules or figs from this tree. This tree's not going to look like it really is. The disciples don't pick up on it yet, but Jesus is giving them an object lesson. It's not just about prayer. I mean, he's going to use that to teach them about that as well. But it's about how the appearance of health, about how spiritual activity can mask what's really going on with a person and how the, that false appearance can even keep people from knowing and worshiping God. So that gives us insight into why Jesus was so riled up when he found those money changers and animal vendors in the court, animal vendors in the court of the Gentiles. Let's talk for a minute about those passages he quotes. When he turns over the tables, the first thing he said is, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer. Now that's from Isaiah 56. And I'm going to read some more of that passage because when Jesus said that, the people there knew what he was quoting. They knew this passage. So let's read it so we know what it says. This is Isaiah 56, starting with verse 6. And foreigners, that's non-Jews, Gentiles, foreigners who bound themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is quoting from this passage that describes a time when foreigners, foreigners, Gentiles, are going to turn to the Lord and want to obey him and worship him and love him and seek his forgiveness. And God's house will not just be a place for his people, the Jews, to worship, but it'll be a house of prayer for all nations, everyone who wants to worship the only living God. Now, this was kind of radical, what Jesus was saying, because most of the Jews held that when the Messiah came, he was not just going to rescue and lead Israel, he would cleanse the temple of the foreigners, not cleanse the temple for foreigners. Jesus is using God's previous words about the, from Isaiah to remind them that God has always been about all people being his, all people returning his love, all people worshiping him. Because in Jesus' kingdom, he's the king, but also he wants everyone to have access to him. We're that. Like, we're not Jews, right? We have access because of what Jesus has done. We are now able to be with God forever. And that's what this passage is talking about. And then he says another thing. He says, you're making it a den of robbers. He's quoting here from Jeremiah 7. This is the prophecy that Jeremiah gave to the people of Israel about their attitudes towards worship in contrast to their attitudes towards their actions. I'm going to read just a little bit of it here. 
Um, this is Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 4. Don't trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you don't oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. Has this house, this house which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I'm watching, declares the Lord. See, even in Jeremiah's time, Israel had a tendency to celebrate being at the temple, getting all focused on this temple activity, but they lost sight of what it means to live out the love of God, to welcome those around them who need God. Instead, God says they were trusting in deceptive words. And what, what was the example he gave of those deceptive words? This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Look how wonderful this place is. We love being here. We love what we get to do here. We feel so close to God here. But at the same time, they were stealing and cheating and lying and then trying to come before God. They're taking a place of worship and turning it into a den of robbers by their actions and keeping people away from God. They're robbing other people of the ability to worship him. So when Jesus says, you've made this place a den of robbers, he's talking about not just robbing people's money, he's talking about you've robbed them of the ability to worship God. People come to this place, and this courtyard was the only part of the temple that they could enter. And because they, they weren't part of God's covenant people, they're allowed to come to this place, and, and they ought to be able to pray, to contemplate, to worship. But instead, they're treated to an early version of Black Friday. It's not cool. Jesus is king, and he, in his kingdom, he wants everyone to be able to have access to him. So this all comes back to this fig tree. Everyone in this courtyard is doing stuff. They're doing religious stuff, stuff that you could argue had to be done, but it's just leaves. There's no fruit. And by their activity, their leaves, they're making all the Gentiles think that's what worship is. Just come in, give us your money, get your thing, do your sacrifice, and get out of here. They're keeping them from seeing the core, the heart of what it means to worship God. No one can see the majesty of God in that chaotic courtyard. No one's going to be convicted to, to turn from the things that they're doing and turn towards a loving, kind God. They, they can't even contemplate why they're offering this sacrifice. The noise and the distraction and the activity keeps them from being see, even seeing a need for forgiveness. And just like the fig tree, Jesus is calling everyone out for it, saying this place is supposed to be a place where people meet God, but you're taking God out of this place with all your religious activity. There's no fruit here. There's just leaves. And just like the fig tree, Jesus made the temple court look like it really is, unhealthy, by turning over the tables and scattering the livestock and the money and the trinkets and turning over the benches. He's showing this chaos for what it is. It's unhealthy activity, and it simply distracts people from worshiping God. So now it looks like that. So what is this fruit that Jesus keeps mentioning? He mentions it in the parable. He mentions it with the fig tree. What is the fruit of Jesus' kingdom that he isn't seeing? I mean, it's the opposite of all this other stuff we've been talking about. The fruit of Jesus' kingdom is love for God and love for others. And he said earlier, what, the, what is the greatest commandment? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the fruit. That's it. And that's not happening here at the temple. And Jesus makes it really clear when he tells these two parables. In the parable of the, the first parable, the parable of the two sons, he says that what you do demonstrates your love for God. doesn't matter what you look like, your status, your religious upbringing, your pedigree, your, your knowledge of Scripture. He says tax collectors and prostitutes are part of the kingdom, and you religious leaders are not. Why? Because those people actually turn towards me. They choose to follow me. They turn away from what they've been doing. They turn towards me, and they live a life that is based on worship and following me. And then they're inviting other people to do it too. You Pharisees and chief priests, you're not living a life that loves God, and you're certainly not helping anybody else do the same. And then he tells that last parable, the one about the farmers tending the vineyard. And you can tell by that response that the leaders give that they thought they knew what Jesus was getting at. They thought when he was telling this parable that he's referencing the prophets of old and how in the past so many in Israel ignored their messages, even persecuted them, they killed the prophets. And they thought he's telling a story about their history and how God has removed all of them and that now in this generation, they are the good farmers. They're going to give God his due. Jesus says, no, you are the worthless tenants. You have refused to recognize me. You won't acknowledge me. You won't submit to my authority. You stubbornly resisted the truth that everyone else can see. I have come from the Father. I am the Son in that parable. And he says, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. And what is that fruit? To love God and love others. And then, finally, the Pharisees and the chief priests got it. They understood that not only is he claiming to be the true king, that in his kingdom, the Gentiles and the Jews are welcome, they also knew he was calling them out for actively preventing people from worshiping God. They weren't encouraging it to happen. They understood what he was saying about them so well that right then they decided they were going to arrest him and ultimately kill him. And that's where we're headed as we go to the end of Matthew. Okay, so a lot of stuff today. I get it. Let's just kind of review again. What was our big idea? In Jesus' kingdom, we devote ourselves to worship the king and we welcome others to come along. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. And then Jesus declared very clearly, I am the king. And if he's the king, he deserves our devotion. He deserves our worship. Jesus wants everyone to have access to him. He has no patience for when we put up barriers or we do things that keep people from worshiping Jesus as the king he is. And he has an expectation that we're going to bear fruit. His fruit is love for God and love for others. It's not a bunch of spiritual activity. It's not the trappings of worship. It's genuine love for God and love for the people that God loves. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with all of this information? I'm just going to challenge you to ponder some things this week. You can maybe talk about them in your connect group this week or, or just even in your own personal devotion time. Just think about these things. First, 
in a practical sense, what does it mean to live a life that worships the king? If worship means giving Jesus what he deserves, how do I do that in my day-to-day life? How do you worship him in your job, in your family, in your relationships, in, in your interaction with the server at the restaurant when you go out this afternoon, or your, your kid's teacher when you see him at school, or the Target employee who's ringing you up? How do you love those people the way God loves them? Next, what are ways that we put up barriers that might keep people from Jesus? Are there, are there things that you do, things that I do? Is, do I interact with people in person or on social media in a way that's maybe going to turn them off to Jesus because of what I'm doing and they know that I follow him? And also, how do we tear those barriers down? What are things that I can say and do that's going to help people worship Jesus as the king that he is? And how do you cultivate um, your own soil? How do, you, how do you structure your life to allow the fruit of loving God and then loving others so that will grow and be produced in your life? Now, I'm, I'm not asking these questions to make anyone feel shame to make like you, you shouldn't feel like you don't measure up. I, I just want us to read this passage. I want us to hear these words of Jesus, and then let's just contemplate. What is he calling us to do? What does it mean for our life? We didn't just look at it and then walk away and say, that was fun. We ought to do something with it. The only times that Jesus is harsh with people, and we see that over and over, but especially here, it's when they refuse to see themselves for who they are, and they refuse to submit themselves in worship to him. And then, by their actions and words, they prevent other people from coming to him. The ones who come to him honestly, just as we are vulnerable about our problems and our need, that's when Jesus meets us. He offers us more. He frees us from guilt and shame. He says, there doesn't any place here. He says, I've taken care of that. And then he invites us to take what he's given us and pass it on to other people, to spread the same grace that we've experienced to the world around us. That's worship. That's worship of him, and that's worship to the world around us as we demonstrate what it looks like and invite them to join in and worship him as well. Seeing ourselves clearly, seeing Jesus and his love even more clearly, and then living our life out in light of that. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, Thank you for making it clear what it means to follow you. Um, And thank you that you you love us so passionately, so completely. I'm grateful that we don't have to ever be afraid to be in your presence. Um, I, I just think about when Paul said, we are, we are now at peace with God. We are friends of God because of what you've done. I don't want to take that for granted, but I also don't want to do anything that keeps anybody else from experiencing that freedom and that joy and that peace as well. So as we go out this week, God, bring your words to our mind. Remind us what you've done in us. Remind us of what you're offering. And then empower us 
to return that worship to you and welcome the people around us to come and join in with what you're doing in our lives so you can do it in theirs too. We love you, Jesus. We're grateful for our, our family here, grateful for the time we get to spend together learning about you and really experiencing you as a group. It's in your name we pray. Amen.